Well, let's get into things this morning. Um, This past week, I heard a story that I wanted to share with you all, and uh, I thought it was kind of comical. Uh, In our age of COVID, many of us have been affected, but uh, not just humans have been affected. Last year, the Sumida Aquarium in Tokyo made an emergency request of its residents and probably others worldwide. They, They needed people to call in and FaceTime with their collection of about 300 uh, spotted garden eels. Right, th- these eels, they're, they're like little tiny eels. They look like sea worms. And they had become, over the years, had become normalized or socialized through normal human interaction. Uh, you know, the eels will just kind of like when people would come by, they just, they remind me of prairie, do- prairie dogs, right? The prairie dogs of the sea just kind of pop their heads up there, you know, look around. Um, but in the absence of regular visitors, th- they had reverted to kind of the shyness. So when the aquarium closed last March, as so many places did, the staff noticed that when any of them would approach approach the tanks, the eels would go back into the sand and they would hide. And this was troublesome because the the staff, the zoologists there, depended on their socialization in order to be able to perform like the routine health health checks that they needed. So the aquarium came up with a solution. They set up uh, five iPads by the tanks, and they asked the public to, to call in, right, so that they could see and, like, talk to these eels. So here, here's, like, a picture. This was, I, I found this article on Business Insider. It's, it might be hard to see, but you can kind of see in, like, the bottom left, there are these, like, little worms poking out. There's a kid who's calling in um, to it. And they had five of these uh, set up along the tanks. Um, now, these eels are very popular in Japan. In fact, there was a, um, in that same article, they described how, like, one couple got married in front of the tanks and they had like a spotted garden eel themed cake and stuff so that like this was a popular thing for them so they actually had to limit that you could only spend five minutes a day they were just jam-packed with with, uh with um callers so you know i uh i scoured the internet because you know this was a year ago i need resolution like how how did it how did it work like did the eels you know recover i couldn't find anything so i'm sorry that i can't give you any kind of uh closure on that uh, but the story, what struck me was the story, it, it reminds us of the dangers of isolation. Right? In the absence of regular socialization, these eels became shy and they became depressed. The zoologists weren't able to provide for the needs of the eels. Right? They weren't able to maintain their health checkups and things like that. Now, over the past year and a half, many of us have experienced similar levels of isolation. It's left us exhausted, burned out. It's left us potentially emotionally and spiritually unwell. Many of you, if you've been listening to me long enough, you hear me say that faith is not a journey that you're meant to go on alone. Community is a regular part of that spiritual path. And I think the Lord has prescribed a solution, a remedy for our socialization needs in this specifically our spiritual socialization needs, and it's the establishment of his church. So this morning, we are going to be looking at the first clause of the creed that falls under this third paragraph, which is, you know, last week we affirmed that we believe in the, in the Holy Spirit. And so what follows is, is activities and actions, elements of our faith that are all applied to us, salvation, elements of our salvation that are applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. What we're going to affirm this morning is that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church in the communion of saints. 
Now that's a bit confusing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig out what that means in just a moment. We'll walk through what those words mean together. But this is important. I think this is an important part of our faith. And I think it's important that the community of the church falls under this paragraph, this section about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, is the person of the Trinity who really launched the church, right? Jesus died for the church, but it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that launched it. Many people would say that the birthday of the church was Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, we talked about that back in January. It was that time when those disciples were in the upper room and you know, this, this wind came rushing through and tongues of fire was resting on their heads and they started speaking all these dozens of languages of people who were in the area for, in Jerusalem for the feast. And I think it was like 3,000, I think it's 3,000, maybe it's 5,000, one of those two. Several thousand came to faith that day. A lot of people point to that moment as the point, the power of the Spirit filling this place and that's what inaugurated, began the church. But the Holy Spirit continues to build and grow his church through activating through applying our faith in the presence of others. Now, in our individualistic society, I think we often get this wrong when it comes to faith. We think, I have been saved, right? I have individual faith, so therefore, I should go to church. I should get involved somewhere. But I think what the Bible teaches is that the way that we should think about it is the other way around. I have been saved into this world-shaking world-shaping community of God. I have been saved to the church, and as a result of that, I get to enjoy personal salvation. I hope you can kind of see how we often get that backwards. So this morning, let's, let's join together as we explore what it means to affirm our faith in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So let's uh, continue our tradition of reciting the creed together. The words are going to be on the screen. So friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And there's more, but we'll continue next week. So before we get to the definition of what the church, uh, the definition of the church, what it is and isn't, um, there's two adjectives. I should have left that on. I'll bring it back later. Two adjectives. Actually, let's bring that back now. I'm sorry. I'm all over the place today. So two adjectives describing the church that we should explore. The first thing you see there is that the church is called holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be different. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives, we, we see kind of Paul describing this. He gives a list of vices, uh, you know, this, the, these elements of life that were characteristic of people who were living in opposition to God. And he says, all these people who were doing this stuff are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. 
Right. You all were also part of that. You were following the ways of the world. You were participating in these things that you shouldn't be doing, leading to darkness. But, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, keep that in mind, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I mentioned this last week, but just to restate, that word sanctified literally means you were being made holy. That's what the word sanctified means. So Paul here is addressing a number of people who were in this church in the city of Corinth. And, and as I just said, like they were participants in, in, in living lives that were not honoring to God. They were doing stuff that wasn't good for them. But what happened? Jesus came. He purified these believers. He washed them, right? What did Paul say? He washed them. So he cleansed them of unrighteousness. He sanctified them. Kind of set them on this path to become holy. And he justified them, kind of cleaned their slate, made them perfect uh, in God's eyes by his name and also by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? These people, this community, which made up a portion of the church, had been living in the world when God called them out of the world to be set apart, to live for him. Right? The church is called to be holy, to live in a way um, that is in alignment with the things of God. And at times when we live that way, it's going to be in contrast to the broader culture around us. Now, I'm not saying that the church should ever be militaristic in our opposition to the world. Right? There might be things where the world is going away a certain way that isn't necessarily like you know, the antithesis of what God wants. That, that's going to happen, right? That, that's what's, what scholars call common grace, that like the world is not as bad as it can be and that God even now is kind of sustaining you know, virtue in, in some people, even if they don't honor God or see God, right? Uh, we can go down that pathway another time. Well, but there are times where society is going one way and God encourages us to go another. God has call, calls us to place our trust and security in something that might be different than our neighbor's. That Jesus used the example of, uh, you know, he, he talked about wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow, right, the path to righteousness. And, you know, for a long time, I really am indebted to my friend, a good friend of mine that I went to seminary with, because he opened my eyes to, I think, what Jesus is teaching here. I don't think those are two separate paths that we are on. I think it's the same path. We, he, we did this, he was preaching at one of the fall retreats that I did with students at Pitt. And uh, what he had us do is he had the group all walk in a certain direction. You know, like we're walking down the aisle to the sanctuary. And one person who he named, he said, turn around and start walking this way. And he said to everyone else, he's like, you know, don't intentionally block her, but don't get out of her way. And so what happened is when she turned around and started walking against the current, it was hard. It was jarring. It was difficult, laborious. I think that's what Jesus meant about that, right? The easy path is the path that everybody else is doing, but that, that narrow path is when you turn around, which is what repent means, when you turn around and you start walking towards the things of God. It can be hard. Now, one of the examples, to try to make this concrete, this is one of the easy examples for me because it's one that I struggle with in my everyday life, is money. Right? Because the world tells us that money makes it go round. If you have enough, you're going to be happy. You're going to be safe. You're never going to want for anything. Right? In that scenario, money becomes the idol, something that we place great value we see our security in. 
that we are going to work ourselves to exhaustion just to get a little more. But God has called us to a different lifestyle. He's called us out of a lifestyle of greed, out of a lifestyle that maximizes profits, minimizes expenses, and has a tendency to use people, treat people like a commodity. Instead, God's called us to a worldview of generosity, one that perhaps we don't have everything that we want, but we have security in God. I mean, like, how crazy is it that the scriptures encourage us to, some might say, you know, um, tell us that we have to, like, command us. In Jesus, there's grace, but so I'm going to say encourage, that the scriptures encourage us to give away 10% of everything we make for the purposes of God's kingdom. I mean, to someone who hasn't experienced the transformation of Jesus, that's lunacy. Or at the very least, it's like financial irresponsibility. That's just one example. There's a multitude of them. But one example of what it might look like to shift from living the way that everybody else lives to being called out, living countercultural, living holy with respect to God. Now, for anyone who's tried to live a holy life, and holy, I mean, can mean morally pure. We, we often use that, uh, uh, you know, as, as um, synonyms, but that's, that's not literally what holy means. But God is morally pure. Being holy does mean morally pure, but not, it's kind of like all, uh, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, you know. That geometry example make, analogy makes sense if it doesn't, sorry. Um, But when we try to live this way, when we try to live in alignment with the things of God, we recognize that it's hard. While we are holy, God has declared us holy, and we are becoming more holy, we're still prone to error. And so we're going to need constant correction. And so this is one of the purposes of the church. When we are together in community, we're able to provide correction for one another. This is the wisdom from Proverbs 27, 17. It's a passage you've probably heard before if you spend any time in the church. It says, iron sharpen irons. Excuse me. Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens another. Like, this is a metaphor from the blacksmithing world. You know, if you, 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 you know, sword was really important in that day. You didn't necessarily have police officers and law enforcement and, you know, things like that. Sometimes you had to kind of protect yourself. Uh, you had to go to battle, protect yourself from other nations. Um, right? A sword, when it's used, its edge would become dull. It's going to have little notches in it from use. And it's going to reduce its effectiveness. So using another sword or a strong piece of iron, a, a strong iron tool, right? you could like shave off, you could resharpen it by shaving off those notches, those bits of metal, creating a fine edge and therefore sharp edge which again would make the sword useful again. This is one of the reasons that community is important in our growth towards holiness, right? Because as we're, you know, out there in the world, we're getting beat up. You're, you're enduring suffering and trials. We, we err on the path that God has called us on. We've got notches in our lives and our souls that we need one another to kind of knock off of us. We need others to help us refine our edge. And we can refine their edge as well so that we both can be effective for God's purposes in the world. I would say that the holiness of the church is the sum of the holiness of its parts. Us. We are the parts of the church. 
So through accountability, through compassion, through discipline and discipleship, we can steward the gifts of God and live a life in the church which can bring glory and blessing and honor to God's name. That's what it means, I think, to be holy as a church. The second adjective that's used in the creed is Catholic. Now, this is the one I know when I was growing up and I heard the creed was very confusing to me because we were Presbyterian and I was like, why are we saying that we affirm the the Roman Catholic Church? That's not what this means. This doesn't mean that we're affirming the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying that we're dismissing the Roman Catholic Church, but that's not what the creed affirms. Notice if you see on the screen, the word Catholic is lowercase. Typically, that's important because if you see the Catholic with the capital C, right? My Austin was taking third grade grammar this year, and he was learning about proper nouns, right? That you're going to capitalize a proper noun. And so if you see Catholic with the C capitalized, it indicates a proper noun, a name, a title. And so, you know, a, a Catholic with a capital C is more inferring Roman Catholic. But Catholic with the lower C, the word Catholic just means universal. So in the creed, when we affirm that the church is Catholic, we're affirming the universal reach of the church, that it embraces Christians everywhere, especially in our age of, you know, our modern age of hundreds and potentially hundreds of denominations, right? This is a really important nuance, a caveat for us to understand, because it might be a no-brainer for us to, to affirm the other elements of the creed, right? Like, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, raised from the dead, right? He's coming again. Like, those are very natural if you read the scriptures to affirm. But if we can all affirm those items, then I would say that means we are part of the Catholic with the lowercase c church. Whether that means we happen to be Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or Pentecostal or Methodist or Lutheran or non-denominational for that matter. In fact, the Nicene Creed, uh, which the Nicene Creed came out about 200 years after the Apostles' Creed, um, it was really focused on the the divinity of Jesus. That was something that uh, there were some heresies in that day that were kind of questioning whether whether or not Jesus was actually divine. And so that's really what the Nicene Creed was focusing on. But one of the things that they changed in the language is they said that they believe in one holy Catholic church. One. Right, that there aren't multiple churches, not multiple Christian churches at least. We're all part of one big, sometimes happy, family. Now, I, I know this can be difficult right, in our age of individualism because what's happened in church history is that if you are you know, in fellowship with someone, you're, let's just say we're in a church together. We are in a church together, but for the purpose of, of uh, you know, the hypothetical situation, we have a disagreement, we have an argument. What's happened in history is that in the, the, that disagreement, we split. Half go over here and half go over here. Could be, what, you know, what kind of music? Do we want traditional music or do we want contemporary music? It could be, frankly, the church is to split over what color the carpet you get. I mean, these are silly. Some of them are silly things to split over. Now, here's what I'm going to say. I don't think the separation itself is always the key issue or the important issue. Let's use the example of baptism. Some Christians might prefer to baptize babies, and some Christians prefer to baptize adults. Now, I, I'm an adult Baptist. You know, cre- they call it credo baptism. I believe that we baptize adults with a profession of faith. I think that's what the Bible teaches. 
But you know what? Even as much as I study the Bible, I can't say that with 100% certainty. Maybe I'll say I'm 98% sure. But I got to hold out grace, right? That I could be wrong in that. There's really good theology. In fact, Reformed theology, which typically teaches infant baptism, it's actually quite beautiful. I wish I could believe it, but I just don't think that's what the scriptures point to. But I'm not going to completely dismiss them for their theology. So as a result, it would make sense that there are going to be some different expressions of faith that are characterized by different people's perspectives of baptism. In my mind, that's not the problem. I used to think that was the problem in my youth of faith. It's like, why can't we all get along? But we're going to, you know, the, the Bible is a challenging document to interpret. And you're going to get, you, you get five theologians in a room, you're going to get eight different interpretations of that. That's just how it is. Some are going to be better than others. But the, the separation over that, or, or at least having some degree of homogene, you know, Worshiping with others who have some of that, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se. But what is problematic is what happens next and what you've typically seen in church history. When our perspective is viewed as the only right way, right? right? We understand God in this. You don't, right? Those people are wrong. And we begin to question their faithfulness of God. They can't actually be Christians and believe that. That is a separation that breaks the bonds of fellowship. And I think that is what is an anathema to God. Perhaps, you know, just another way to try to think about it, maybe you can think of different denominations as like a family that grows up together. Right, eventually the kids are going to move up, grow up, they're going to move out of the house, you know, maybe like one of them takes a job that takes them out west to California. You're still family, but you're not together as much as you used to be. But when we start to reject faith in someone else. Again, I, I think that especially when it comes to the non-essentials, that's what the, the point that I want to, the asterisk that I want to make clear, right? I think in order to be a Christian, I think you need to be able to affirm what we've been studying in the Apostles' Creed. If you're outside of the bounds of that, I think historically in the church, you're outside of the bounds of Christianity. I'm trying to say that as graciously and non-judgmental as I can. But for everything else, all these, these um, non-essentials, when we try to break fellowship over those things and say, you can't be a Christian, that's like going to, you know, that would be like me going to my brother and being like, you moved to Illinois. You're not in Pennsylvania anymore. You're no longer my brother. Like, it just doesn't make sense over that in that way, you know? So anyway, that's this idea of affirming what it means to be Catholic. So finally, let's get to the object of our focus, saying that we believe in the church. We've acknowledged that it's holy, that it's been set apart by God for his purposes. We've seen that it's Catholic, that it's, you know, we're engaged in the scope and, you know, breadth of the church. Now we get to the heart of the matter, which is the church itself. The word that you, if you read your English New Testaments, anytime you see the word church, the Greek word that's used there is a word that's called ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means, ek means out of. It means um, the called out assembly or congregation. That's what church means. That that word harkens back to what I talked about uh, just a few moments ago when I was discussing what it means that the church is holy, that God has taken a group of people and he has called them out of their current situation, their current context, and set them apart from the broader world by his grace to bring about his purposes. That's what it means to be the church. But what's implicit in this 
right? The called out ones, the called out assembly, means that the primary purpose of the church is to be a fellowship before it is an institution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad for church to create denominational structures because denominations can be important for accountability and support. It's not wrong for a church to put together operations to help people get connected, to help them grow in their faith. But those things are secondary. The church is first and foremost defined in terms of the people who God has called out of their previous situations and called together for his purposes. It's a community of people. It is not an enterprise. Now, Paul makes this point clear in his letter to Ephesus. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, he says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It continues, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that, that first verse, verse 19, highlights this transition, right? You aren't, you were outside of the kingdom, right? You were strangers and aliens, but you're not anymore. Right? You, God has brought you in. He's made you a saint. He's made you a citizen of God's kingdom. But then after that, the language switches a little bit to that of a building. You and I are building blocks that are being used to, to construct the temple that God dwells in, the place where God lives, you and I, you know, individually are like, you know, mini temples, if you will. Right? The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and so therefore there is, you know, that language of, of temple in, in the Old Testament. Paul says that very thing in that passage I cited earlier, 1 Corinthians 6. He talks about that, you know, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So we individually are these mini temples. But what happens is together, all of us as mini temples create an entire structure which becomes the, the resting place of God. Notice that this is a significant shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament because in the Old Testament, they were focused on the building which is a, the temple. Initially, it was the tabernacle. If you've been following along in the Bible reading plan, we just finished Exodus and are into Leviticus, right? This, the tabernacle, this tent that God physically dwelled in after Solomon built the temple. So now there was a... a, a you know, the tent was a movable place. Now there is this kind of static reality of the temple. After Solomon's prayer and sacrifices, what do we see? The glory of God descend and dwell in that place. But now God's glory doesn't dwell in a house that's made with human hands, but is the community of faith. Maybe that's, maybe that's ultimately what Jesus was getting at when he said, right, when two or more gather in my name, I am there. Because that's that idea of a temple being formed because of the community of faith. So, you know, if you're here this morning, to some extent, this is probably a preaching to the choir moment, right? You see value in the expression, uh, uh, the, the local expression of that global church, right? We know that it's important to have friends and brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God together. But I do want to say this. One of the things that I think we should be wary of is that it's really easy for us to dump on the church. There's a lot, a lot that can be criticized in how you know, followers of Jesus, how churches have carried themselves in the past, how they continue to carry themselves today. 
There's countless individuals that my heart breaks that their faith journey has been derailed because of hurt that they've encountered in the church. But friends, I think the result of that and the result of those stories is not just to dismiss the church. Many folks think like, I've got Jesus. That's all I need. That's enough for me. I don't need the church. But this is what we saw last week in the, when we were looking at the Holy Spirit. That one of the effects of the Holy Spirit is that he gives us gifts. And those gifts, that equipping, is meant to be shared with others in faith. Right? That we together are an integral part of the body of faith. Christ's body, the church. And so I'm going to say this, that I think we need to show the local church a measure of grace. We need to be patient with it. Now, I'm not saying that we should turn a blind eye to the sins of the church. Just as an example, the Southern Baptist Convention, it's America's largest denomination, they're going through some real trials right now. And it's pretty much all self-inflicted. Right? That This denomination has a history of overt racism. Russell Moore, who just recently resigned, he was the head of the uh, Ethics and Civil Liberties Commission there with the Southern Baptist Convention. He wrote a pretty scathing letter talking about how even now, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention was on the wrong side of history back before the Civil War, but even now, you know, 150 years after that, people are still making overtly racist comments in clo behind closed doors. They're executives. That's not living the way that Jesus wanted us to live. They're also under fire, self-inflicted, because there has been a history of abuse in the church where people in power have used that power in, in a degrading way, right? In a way that Satan has incited to them, not God. And what has the church done? Swept it under the rug, turned a blind eye. Again, Beth Moore, hugely influential figure in, in the Southern, no relation to Russell Moore. Hugely uh, impactful person. She's stepping away because of the, the misogyny and the way in which they've covered up abuse. So that there's a convention, I think. Their convention is in a couple weeks, and there's going to be a few, you know, ten, couple ten thousands of people, delegates going to that. They've got to sift through that. Right? that. That's stuff that needs to be dealt with. They have a reckoning coming, coming that, that is deserved. But even in light of all of that, we should not allow that to be an excuse for us to just throw up our hands and give up on the church altogether. In the scriptures, the church is described as the bride of Christ, which means that Jesus Christ himself is passionate love for his church. Right? Think about it this way. I've, I've got a ton of deficiencies. I am impatient. I am miserly with money. I can be judgmental. Sometimes I put, spend too much time playing video games, right? Uh, in spite of all these things, my wife decided to marry me anyway, and anyone who knows um, Sarah knows that she is a beautiful and compassionate woman of God. But how do you think it would go over if you go up to Sarah and you just say, like, Sarah, I'm so grateful for your friendship, but in the next breath start talking about me, you know, bad-mouthing me. Like, Sarah, you're so wonderful, but let's, let's talk about that good-for-nothing husband of yours. There, there actually was an instance that that happened once, but that's, that's a story for another day. It's not going to go over real well. Because she loves me, right? You can't accept her and reject me. We go together. Now, that's not to say that she's not going to, you know, accept some of your criticisms as valid, because uh, I'm sure there are plenty that she would, you know, she'd be like, yeah, like, Chris is kind of jacked up in some of these areas. 
But there's a big difference between like, Chris did this thing that really teed me off to, you know, like, Sarah, I'd love to come over and hang out with your family, but only if your husband's not there, right? That's the nature of the relationship with Jesus and his church. Yes, the church has its faults. Yes, we need to be honest with those faults and seek reconciliation, restoration in those areas, but it's not going to go over real well if we say, Jesus, I love you, but I cannot stand your church. Church is who he adores, is what scripture says. All right, real quick, before we, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm preaching long today. Before we get to application, um, the last thing I want to mention is that, that final phrase in the creed, the communion of saints. Now, people don't always agree with what this means. Um, I would suggest it's one of two things. First, communion of saints could be just a restatement of everything we just talked about, right? That the, the holy Catholic church is made up of a fellowship of saints, of believers, but some, some do suggest that perhaps the word saints isn't meant to be describing people, but is more about describing objects or rituals. Right? Instead of communion of saints, people, they suggest that it means a communion, a collection of holy things, right? acknowledging elements like believing in the sacraments, communion, baptism, right? that, that we believe in the regular rhythms of church life, corporate worship, the teaching of the word pathway for discipleship. So I, I don't know which way it is. I think both of those things are interlinked with one another. So pick your poison, take which one resonates more fully with you. I'm skipping a few things just to get back to this for the sake of time. So let's turn to application. What difference does this mean? So first is this. I think we need to be connected to a local church somewhere. But I don't think connection is enough. I think we need to go one step beyond just being connected and we need to be committed. Here, here at City Reach, uh, we don't have a membership process. Uh, I'm still just trying to figure out what that looks like um, for us. Because church membership, I think, is a little outdated in our culture. Like, membership today, it's reserved for, like, you know, I was a member at Planet Fitness, my gym, uh, a member at, at a country club. Perhaps you're part of, like, a member of a healthcare system. All of those things are commodities where we get something out of being a member, perhaps far more than what we're actually contributing to the system. I think we need another word to describe our roles in the church. I mean, something that I've toyed with is that idea of partnership. Right? Partnership highlights my participation and contribution to something that's bigger than myself. Even if I'm not getting every, I mean, think about marriage, right? Marriage is a partnership. There are going to be days where, I'll, I'll make myself the bad guy, Sarah is not getting all of her needs met. That's going to happen because I'm a fallen individual. But in that, she doesn't just throw her hands up and be like, well, I don't want to be a member here anymore. She's committed to me. And hopefully there's going to be some give and take where, you know, she does get her needs filled and there might be times that I don't get my needs filled. But we're committed to one another. Right? Even if I don't get everything I want out of the moment, I know I have a role in this. And this is important because if we are going to be holy, if we're going to follow what it means to be holy as the church, we need each other for when we start to stray. We need to have, as we're iron, we need some other iron to come and sharpen us so that we can be what God wants us to be, right? Because church is not meant to be a social club. It's not a country club for those who have it all together. Instead, it is a triage unit for the spiritually broken and wounded. So we need to be committed so that we can care for one another. That we know that when we are struggling, that there's people that aren't going to give up on us either. Secondly, we affirm that the church is Catholic. 
that each local congregation is part of the larger church universal, that we are part of a big and sometimes happy family. All right, Paul gave some words. I'm not going to read them. It's Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. You can read them yourself. But basically, Paul says, God did, Jesus did all of this stuff for you. You were dead. He brought you to life. He made you his child, yada, yada. Therefore, walk in a way that is worthy of that. Right? Be patient. Be humble with each other. Be gentle, bearing with one another in love. We need to show humility and gentleness and patience to our brothers and sisters, especially those who might view their faith differently than ourselves doesn't mean that we need to affirm everything that they believe, but we need to show grace, especially those who differ on those non-essentials. Things like baptism, things like the miraculous gifts, our view of the end times. Another timely example, and then I'm going to wrap up. Many conservative uh, denominations have outright rejected this thing that's called critical race theory. Critical race theory is a... Nobody fully knows exactly what it is. It's very dynamic. So it, it is like I, one of these guys who I really respect, Andy Crouch, I was actually asking him this week about it. He's like, this thing is just a moving target because people are interpreting it in different ways. But gener- just generally speaking, it is a framework that sees racism as systemic and built into many of the structures of our society. And many conservatives are like, this is Marxist because there's, there's, there are elements of like Marxism in it. And as a result, they've dismissed it as an affront to the gospel. But there are people in our churches who, who are kind of, I don't want to say enamored by this, but they say, hey, this is helping me make sense of the world in which I live. Just last week, Justin Gibney, president of the Ann campaign, if you've never heard of the Ann campaign, you should check them out. He posted a video for the Gospel Coalition, and he's explaining that like, not everyone who, who had, you know, not every critical uh, engagement of racial justice is Marxist. And that's really important for us to see. There are denominations that are like, we don't want to talk about racial justice because it's Marxist. Lumping it under critical race theory. We shouldn't be dismissing faith just because we may not understand this or because the, the, the celebrity pastors that we're listening to are stoking fear in us that it's like our nation's going to go down the tubes if we, if we hold to this. Something like critical race theory. If we are part of the same spiritual family, which I think we are, those of us who are white owe it to our black and brown brothers and sisters to listen empathetically to their experiences, right? To do what Jesus taught us to do, take some planks out of our eyes to recognize that perhaps we don't see the world the same way that they do. Instead of just dismissing systemic racism as Marxist and breaking fellowship with people who might hold to it, we need to listen and see that there might be elements of truth, that there's inequality that exists in our society. Remember the words of Paul here. As we engage with one another in the body of Christ, do so with humility and gentleness and patience. Because the church is the bride of Christ, right? Jesus died to pull, you know, to pull this community out of the world to equip us to accomplish his purposes. God's kingdom in the here and now. We together in this local church, but also in the church universal, the Catholic church, we are co-laborers in that pursuit. May we be a people who are holy, who are set apart, who are called out of the world for God's purposes. May there be unity in that universal reach of the church. May we continue to strive together as a family to see God's kingdom come, to see the restoration that God wants to bring in our communities. 
that we can go through these routines and these rhythms to prepare ourselves to participate in that marriage feast of the Lamb that Jesus promised, that God the Father promises when Jesus and his bride are together at last. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. Sometimes your bride tees us off. May we see our own culpability as part of the church. May we engage in your Holy Spirit, the power of your Holy Spirit to point out the areas in which we need to change, we need to fight for change, we need to have reckonings for things like what's going on right now in the Southern Baptist Convention. But Lord, may we be committed to the church universal, the Catholic church, because it is through your church that your gospel is shared. Paul says, how will people hear it if people don't go and they don't preach it? The church is the, the medium, the medium that you have sent that out. Give us a vision for the church. Help us see the church the way that you see the church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.